BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Olivia Perez, and this is Friend of a Friend. I hope that everybody's feeling well and safe and sane right now. It's been a really challenging past few months for all of us, and I hope that everyone's taken the time to check in with yourselves and rest. I am really excited to be back. We took a week off from the show in an effort to really encourage all of our listeners, myself included, to be as present and active as you possibly can be right now in the movement for Black Lives Matter. I, like most of you, have really been processing the past few weeks and in processing and in trying to figure out what my role is in this and how I can truly advocate for change, especially somebody with a platform. I've made it a personal mission to help relay as much information, education, and action as I possibly can when it comes to social change and racial injustice. Off the bat, I can promise that I am not always going to get it right. But I really want to try, and I'm dedicated to using this platform to amplify Black voices, advocate for equality, encourage all of you to have some pretty uncomfortable conversations with your peers and with yourself, and arm all of us with the knowledge to make our own informed decisions and use them to make change. Because at the end of the day, I started this show to be of service to change, whether that's for ourselves and for our dreams and ambitions or for our next door neighbor. I am so excited to welcome Assemblymember Sydney Kamlanger, who represents the 54th Assembly District in California, encompassing Baldwin Hills, the Crenshaw community, all of Culver City, Ladera Heights, Lamar Park, Mar Vista, Mid-City Los Angeles, Palms, Pico Union, Westwood, and Windsor Hills, which, if you live in California, is like everywhere. In 2019, Assemblywoman Kamlinger guided six of her eight bills to the governor's desk, all of which were signed into law. Most notable among them were two bills that incorporated implicit bias training into continued education for healthcare professionals, lawyers, and judges. She's also now the author of a new bill called the Crisis Act, which calls for community groups over the police to respond to 911 calls from people who are experiencing a mental health crisis, unhoused people, people exposed to community violence, and people with substance abuse disorders. So... Grab whatever you need, take notes, because today I really hope will be a mini lesson in debunking so many things that we're hearing right now, whether it's on the internet or whether we're protesting in the streets, from what does it really mean to defund the police? What on earth is a community group? How are they held accountable? Who's going to manage them? And how we as a community can come together to understand this knowledge and go out and make real change. Thank you so much for taking the time to coming on the show today. And for all of the work that you do for Los Angeles, I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for the invitation. I love being a guest on your show. I feel like I'm <laughs> hip and new and fresh now. 
I think you were all of those things before the show. You've done such incredible work and I'm I'm truly honored to have you on. How are you doing today specifically? It's been quite a tumultuous two weeks. So I always like to ask my guests and a tumultuous past three months. So I always like to start with, how are you doing in this moment? Thank you for asking. I am a little overwhelmed. So we just finished a tribute, the entire state legislature, the Senate and the Assembly, not too long ago, we did a we kneeled for eight minutes and forty six seconds in honor and in tribute to George Floyd and so many others who have died, really at the hands of systemic racism, sort of cultural erasure at the hands of police. So it was an emotional morning on top of just the anxiety of the last couple of weeks being back in the legislature and pushing to get bills passed in the moment that we're in right now with protests and cries for real change. So it's been pretty overwhelming today. I can imagine, and probably even more so due to the work that you've dedicated your entire career to. Before we get started, I would like to disclaim that I am not in politics at all. Quite honestly, I think I think I failed AP Gov in high school, but I do think that I'm, I'm really dedicated to learning and especially during this meaningful movement for so many people. I really want to share my learnings with my community. So please, please excuse any novice remarks I make and feel free to correct me at any time. I am totally here to learn and share it back with everybody as well. Um, but I've heard. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'd like to begin with you telling us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Fabulous. I'm originally from Chicago. I got my first taste of politics long ago, helping my grandmother work to get Harold Washington elected as the first black mayor of Chicago. I came out to Los Angeles to go to USC. So all of you Trojans in the house. (laughs) And then I stayed, you know, the weather, the people, the energy of the city. I was here during the riots in 92 and also for the earthquake in 93. And those were really transformative moments for me. I went to back to the East Coast to go to graduate school, I think mostly because of the Northridge earthquake, but found my way back and I've been here ever since. I am a product of an interracial marriage. My parents are very involved in the arts. I love politics. I love arts. I love how we can use all of these different mediums and words to really communicate emotion and to help people consider new ways of thinking through different lenses. And I think arts, the arts a really powerful tool for making that happen. I was elected in a special election in 2018. Before coming to the California State Legislature, I was president of the board for our Los Angeles Community College District. So it's all about education for adults and yeah, folks getting out of high school. And so once I was in the legislature, I started working on, if you could believe it, a year and a half ago, doing implicit bias training bills seemed like a crazy idea. My first year in the legislature, I worked on a number of bills on implicit bias training and people were like, what, what? And now it seems like you should be doing far more than that. So I love that I was ahead of my time, but when we did it, it seemed like such a crazy thing to do. I worked on implicit bias bills. I do a lot of work in the criminal justice world. I'm looking at how we can change our criminal justice system, looking at what probation is about, parole is about, policing is about, prosecutions are about, and the role of our judges. All of those things play a role in how people are able to live with equity. And oddly enough, they all help determine your economics and your ability to really succeed in life 
on your own without being tethered to systems. So we've been doing a lot of work this year on that, all before COVID, all before George, George Floyd. So it's amazing the confluence of energy into these issues. I would love to talk a little bit about the two bills that you worked on in 2019 in learning a little bit more about you. You passed two last year, one for health equity that requires curriculum on implicit bias as a component of continued medical education, and another for breaking implicit bias attitudes and stereotypes in the courts, which requires implicit bias training and testing for members of the judicial community. And both of those are now passed. Obviously, both of those have so much to do with bias, which is what you were just talking about. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you committed yourself to that kind of work. So I will say that there's a dirty little secret in politics. There's one thing to get something passed, but then there's another thing to have it be funded and enforced. And so oftentimes we say, hey, we got this bill passed, but if there's no money attached to it, or if we're not enforcing it, they're just words on a sheet of paper. And so That's something we all have to work to make sure happens. So implicit bias, you know, we all have it. I think one of the reasons why those two bills were hard to get passed is because people would read it and then they would say, well, I'm not racist. This isn't what's happening. And we all have biases, every single one of us. And so the goal is to sort of acknowledge that you have them and then how to go through some training so that you can see where they are, see where your blind spots are, and then implement tools, techniques, trainings to help you mitigate. Because oftentimes nurses, doctors, physician assistants, judges, bailiffs, they're all making decisions that impact our life. And wouldn't it be really important to make sure that when they are making decisions, they're doing it bias-free? So that was the impetus. We know so many of our allies in the LGBTQ community are afraid to go to the doctor. We know that Black women have huge numbers, relates to maternal mortality. We know that Latino brothers and sisters are less likely to go to the doctor because of biases. And so we have a real need. It's imperative that we work to help folks that are helping us stay healthy, check their own biases at the door when they're prescribing medication when they're asking us questions about how we're feeling. And the same can be said for judges. It must be a really interesting job to have, especially now. Both of those bills have so much to do with systemic racism. There are definitely people out there who don't believe that it's been a part of our system for generations. And I wonder what you say to those people, especially in this moment, who try to fight the fact that systemic racism is real. Well, I I think a couple of things. It's hard to talk about racism because it's designed in a way to make someone feel like the villain. And we generally don't want to wake up and say, I'm to blame. I'm a bad person. So people automatically get defensive when you talk about racism. The other thing is, it's also really uncomfortable to talk about privilege. And when you have privilege, You generally don't see it, but you certainly don't want to give it away. And it's also hard to understand what someone else is going through that doesn't have that privilege. So for example, you know, when I'm applying for an application for a house, you know, I'm wondering if someone is going to allow me to go to the open house or, you know, if they will accept my application. I'm wondering if the bank is going to look at me fairly when I'm applying for a loan. I look at when I'm applying for a job, if someone's going to treat me differently because I've checked off the box black. I wonder if I'm getting pulled over for a speeding ticket or whatever, if that's the only thing it's going to be. And all of those things are probably things that people don't have to wonder about. 
if they're privileged. But it's it's very hard to talk about that if that's not, you know, your lived experience. And so it's very uncomfortable. But I feel like we're at the moment in time where we don't really have time to be comfortable. A hundred percent. Liberties are at stake. I think that's something that I have really admired seeing. Obviously, there's a lot on the internet right now. There's a lot of social media. But the amount of people that I think have come out and encouraged people to have the most uncomfortable conversations, whether it's in your office or your home, that is something that I've has been deeply inspiring to me in terms of acknowledging the things in our own life that we might not be realizing that are contributing to racism. That has been a really important part of the past two weeks for me is having those uncomfortable conversations, whether it's like with a friend or a parent. Right, right. I've been inspired by talking to a number of my colleagues who all of a sudden have started you know, reading certain books or watching yes. films. I, I, a friend of mine texted me and said, oh my God, I'm watching Ava DuVernay's 13th. Have you I seen I watched it? it last night. Yeah. I literally just got choked up because yeah. it was, that was deeply, it was powerful. Yeah. I was embarrassed and still am about so many things about how much I didn't know and how truly systemic this is in so many different ways. Listeners, if you have not watched 13th by Ava DuVernay, it's on Netflix and I highly recommend it. Have you guys been listening to the non-traditional podcast? It's one of my new favorites and just launched two weeks ago. Non-traditional is a podcast that explores the unique ways their guests have built a career and the tools that they use to get there. Hosted by Anastasia Folarunso, an assistant director who's worked on productions like Ray Donovan and Black Klansman, and Jen Mundia, a Brooklyn-based artist and background vocalist who's performed on SNL, Jimmy Fallon, and Seth Meyers. Non-traditional explores the different and, well, non-traditional ways to build a successful and sustainable career in various walks of life from the perspective of two successful 30-something entrepreneurs themselves. The season is two episodes in. They just had fellow podcaster Emily Abadi on the show, Orange is the New Black's Danielle Brooks the week before, and new episodes are dropping every Monday at 7 a.m. So make sure you head to Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It was important, I think, for my friend to share that with me. And it was equally important for me to hear, to receive that. And so he too said it was very uncomfortable. It's, it's disturbing. It's powerful. It's it's heartbreaking. It's incredibly sad when you realize that those the people they look like you, you know, they look like your mom or your dad, they could be you. But it's also really important for folks to listen with open hearts and open ears because the pain and the anger that you may be seeing or hearing from folks who are protesting doesn't necessarily equate to hate. It's just exhaustion over this feeling that we have yet to be understood or heard. And so I hope that folks recognize that in the protests that we are seeing or experiencing. There's a lot of power and change that can come from anger and hurt, but also resiliency, right? And so it's also important that we don't personalize it too much, but we should personalize it enough to want to jump into it and be part of the movement. Agreed. You just authored the Crisis Act, which I would love to hear all about what the bill proposes and how it would shift the police force. So who knew, you know, in January, we talked about this quiet little bill, AB. Your timing is impeccable. I know. I I have a crystal ball somewhere in the office. You do. (laughs) We authored this bill. I was like, oh my God, is this going to get passed? You know, here we are. We're going to see, we're going to knock on wood. 
but it's called the Community Response Initiative to Emergency Situation. And it says, instead of having law enforcement be the first or the only team, emergency team that you call when there's a crisis, why don't you call um, community-based organizations that are in your neighborhood? They know who you are, they have credibility, they've been trained, they've been vetted. And it's a way to solve level two problems without level 10 force. And so it's a pilot project. It would be in partnership with the state. We would give grants. We would grant out to about 10 to 12 groups across the state and track it for three years. It's, I think, actually the first step in the defunding of police conversations that we're hearing. But we want to we wanna do it. We want to pilot it out. We want to collect the data. And then we want to um, replicate it across the state. I think the timing, like you said, Olivia, is like, you know, serendipitous, but it's, it's really important. Children who are seven who are out on the street, they should not be out on the street, but people should not be calling the police on them. We should be calling a social worker. We should be calling a nurse, you know, the person with mental health issues, the person who's suffering from domestic violence. Maybe they don't want the police to show up and knock somebody in the head you know, and arrest them immediately, but they want some other kind of intervention. This bill says, let's try those alternatives first, because many times people don't want someone to be locked up forever. They just want a problem solved. So you mentioned defunding the police, which I think I'd love to hear a little bit on your thoughts of what that means to you and what your thoughts are on that call to action and then how you feel this bill would work in relationship with the idea of defunding the police? Because I think people think it's like one or the other. I see a lot of conflicting views on social media in that sense. And I'd love to kind of debunk that idea a little bit. So I will say that this is something that sort of popped up, you know, and I don't know that a lot of folks, some people have been researching it quite a lot and others it's very new. And there's a difference between defunding and divesting and abolishing. And so I think the terminology is pretty fluid. I've been reading and what I'm accepting is that defunding the police means spending less money on actual law enforcement. So gear and the battering rams and all of that and using more of that, those dollars into community-based efforts to help with community policing. And I don't really know how that's different from divesting. I want to be honest with that. I know abolishment means get rid of everything. Completely. Um, yeah. Right. So the crisis act, actually, I think is it parallels the intention behind defunding the police because it says instead of giving all of this money to law enforcement, this bill doesn't say we're taking money away because that, those are city council decisions, right? Your police departments are funded by the city. They're not funded by the state. And this is a state bill. But it does say cities, you're going to do what you're going to do. But this is an alternative that the state is proposing happen across the state to kind of offer communities options for how they want to implement public safety. Now, hopefully the bill is passed and funded because it also has a $16 million price tag. So we've gotten lots of support. Everyone's like, oh, I want to be a co-author. I'm going to vote for this bill. But if we don't have any money attached, then it's not going to do anything. So my call to action is call Assemblymember Spilting and Senator Holly Mitchell and tell them, put it in the budget. But what this would say is, let's offer an alternative. And then if it works, we can expand it across the state. I would love if you could provide a little bit of education on the idea of a community-based group. Because I think, again, that's another 
it's not so much a buzzword, but it's a word that we're seeing a lot of and someone like me is new to it. So why do you feel like they are necessary? And I know you were saying earlier that there are going to be 10 to 12 that you're planning on building out. What kind of divisions would you imagine existing within those community groups? So I think it's important to note that many of these community groups are already in existence and they're probably doing some of this work already, but they aren't funded to do it specifically for something like this. I also think it's important to note that we probably do a lot of this work informally anyway, right? Because not everyone trusts the police. And quite frankly, people don't want to call 911 and wait 45 minutes if it's a non-emergency emergency for somebody to show up, right? So this would say, well, I use this example a lot. You know, if you're sick, you're feeling kind of under the weather, do you automatically call your doctor or do you reach out to a friend or a family member who's a nurse or a doctor or has some medical expertise and you say, hey, you know, I, I have these symptoms, what should I do? Because we don't want to go through the exercise of going all the way to number 10 for a solution. So it's very similar, but you have LGBTQ communities, they don't necessarily want to call the police because they don't know if the police officer who's going to respond to them, you know, are they homophobic? Do they understand this community? Are they going to start talking about, you know, my sexual orientation rather than dealing with the problem at hand? Communities who are immigrant communities don't necessarily want to call the police because they say, well, hey, is this person going to come in? And then all of a sudden start looking around at my house and check me, check me out to see if I have, you know, what my status is. Will I get deported? So this would say, hey, community organizations, nonprofit organizations that maybe are working in social work areas and areas around mental health. Maybe they're gang intervention communities, maybe they're faith-based communities who have been working in communities and have been building a coalitions and levels of credibility. So that if you're doing something wrong, Olivia, and you and I are hanging out, I would call this number or call this group where I would know who to talk to. And then, you know, Bobby maybe Bobby and Sally would show up and be like, yo, Olivia, it's time for a little intervention. Why are you acting up? you know, I don't want to have to call the police on you. So why don't we sit down and have this intervention so that you and Sydney could stop acting up and go on about your business. And you know, I'm going to check up on you in about a week and a half, Olivia, to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to do. Cause I see you. Why don't we try something like that? Because I don't think people want to live in fear in their communities. And I think people generally want to get along, but they want to know that the authority is there to actually help them and hold them accountable rather than misunderstand them and potentially hurt them. Speaking of accountability, I know you mentioned earlier that these you would be tracking the data over three years of these community groups. Who would technically be holding these groups accountable? So the Office of Emergency Services, it's called OES, they are a state department and they, this pilot project would be housed within OES. Now, OES is the department right now that has sort of been managing our um, response to COVID. It's central command. So the health, mental health, public health, you know, infrastructure, the governor, all of them come together with OES, central command, and they've been saying, how are we handling COVID? The testing, the response, the PPE. Now say what you want about what people have been getting, that has more to do with funding, but OES is, is, is quite prepared to handle this. Wildfires, it goes through OES. 
this community is under fire. How do we make sure we get them the resources? That department would be managing this. There would be an advisory group to kind of help select the communities where the Crisis Act would be implemented. They would be tracking. And hopefully we will see lower rates of higher rates of intervention, but lower rates of abuse and you know fatalities so that we can expand this. And in a way, it's like saying, hey, communities, why don't we take responsibility for our own public safety? I think we know how to do that. You know, we know who the kooky person is living down the street. We know how to check them. So it says, why don't we kind of expand on this with state support and state monitoring? Did you know that 79% of the autistic community reports feeling lonely or socially isolated? Hiki aims to change that. Founded by Jamil Karim, Hiki, meaning able in Hawaiian, is a friendship and dating social app for the autistic community. After his autistic cousin shared that he was finding it difficult to make friends and was feeling lonely, Jamil designed Hiki's ecosystem to exist to enable neurodivergent adults to lead more fulfilling lives. The app was designed and built not just for the autistic community, but by the autistic community to ensure that the app is truly representative of atypical needs. Hiki was designed to be sensory aware and not triggering. Everything from the colors that sit next to each other to the fonts to the notifications were built for the neurodivergent mind. There are 70 million people who identify as being on the autistic spectrum. This is a public health crisis, but it's also a solvable one. If you are atypical and seeking a friend, a partner, or even just community, Hiki is the space for it. Head to www.hikiapp.com, that's H-I-K-I-A-P-P.com, or search for it in the App Store to download. Now, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Being on social media right now, there's a ton of chatter as to whether, like, is reform the answer? Is abolishing the answer? And I've seen a lot of different initiatives, um, specifically one called the Eight Can't Wait, which is eight new codes of conduct that would go into police conduct that statistically would lower police misconduct by 72%. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think initiatives like that work with reform or are a completely separate effort, and if they even work in tandem with initiatives like yours. So I think they would work in tandem with initiatives like mine. I think part of what the Crisis Act is suggesting is that if you have groups that are managing these lower level sort of emergencies and you allow the police to focus on, you know, higher level emergencies that they're actually trained to respond to. I don't know that police officers are adequately trained or should be intervening with folks with mental health issues or folks who are homeless or folks who are just poor. They're not social workers. They were not hired to do that. I don't think they want to do that. Um, And we are seeing that it's not a good idea to ask them to involve themselves in those situations. The other thing is that many of the policies in the A Can't Wait, many of those policies are sort of already in existence. It's about enforcement and it's about accountability. So we already say de-escalate. We already say, hey, you know, you should have a partner with you. You should not be going out and your partner should help you, you know, jump, you should jump into a situation if it's getting out of hand. We already say you should have body cameras. We already say you should not lie when you're filing a police report. All of those things are already in existence. But if it's a police department responsible for enforcing and monitoring and holding its own members accountable, then I really question how effective the monitoring will be. So it's much more than saying, 
we need these policies. It's about saying what isn't working and how do we sort of really look inside the systems and departments to see how we can create change. You know, there are a number of cities in the state of California that used to be sundown cities. That means after, you know, when the sun goes down, if you're black or brown, you shouldn't be there. And there are a couple of departments whose police chiefs actually were part of the KKK. So, you know, like, I don't know how enforcement about not sticking a dog on someone would work if that's the mentality of the person in charge. On a larger scale, the Democrats just released a bill for police reform, which would ban chokeholds, establish a national database to track police misconduct and prohibit certain no-knock warrants, among a ton of other initiatives. What are your thoughts on this bill? And do you think it would actually help? I think it's a great thing to propose now during this time because it keeps the conversation going. And it also exposes things that are already happening. So I, for example, did not even know that police departments, I mean, I know police departments have canine units, but I did not know that in Los Angeles, a report came out, I think in 2014, that said all of the dog bites that happened, police dog attacks happened only to black and brown folks in Los Angeles. So exactly, so like, hello, right. Hello, yeah. So this kind of proposal exposes what's already happening so that we can begin to say, how do we redesign a public safety system that works for everyone? Absolutely not, you should not be choke holding folks, but don't ban that and then say, hey, we've solved the problem because there are so many other tools. You know, how are we using drones? Are they going into people's homes and invading their privacy? If they are, proportionately, who are they tracking? What happens when you go to court and you're talking to a judge who says that you look like you're very remorseful, Olivia, but I don't look like I'm very remorseful and maybe we've committed the same crime, you know, and have been charged with the same thing. Are we getting sentenced at the same rate? Are we being offered treatment programs at the same rate? Are we being taken off probation based on, you know, similar parallel tracking at the same rate? So it's, it's much deeper than just the police. They are a leg. They are one stool of a three-legged stool. Police do what they do. They work with prosecutors who charge, who, who sentence you. Well, they charge you and they come up with a long list. I sit on the penal code review committee. The book of the penal code is like that thick. That means prosecutors have a menu of opportunities with which they can charge you. So are they charging you at a different rate than they're charging me? And then when we go to the judge, what's happening? Are we being given the same accommodation? Is discretion being used at the same rate? And then when we go to probation, are you eligible for probation, but I'm not? So they're different stools and then it starts to get really complicated and then people's heads start to explode and then everyone wants a martini. And so I totally understand, but it's really important that we take time to unravel all of the levels of how these systems have been designed so that we can treat people equitably and fairly. It's not about having certain people get off and other people not, but it's about equal rights, equal justice. The police in Los Angeles have a $3 billion budget. And we just removed $150 million of funding away. I'd like to hear a little bit about your thoughts on that number. If you think any, 
If you think any reallocation will be accomplished, I'd love to hear something helpful for the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> well, I was at an event with the mayor just last week uh, at Fame Church, Justice Matters. And let me tell you something, he was on something because he was charged. I think it was because he was in the church. And so he made a commitment to saying, I'm with you 100% to fix these things. And I, you know, you got some big, you know what's if you're going to lie in a church. So I'm going to take him at his word. He did talk about defunding the police. You know, $3 billion is a lot and 100 to $150 million is not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, but, you know, I would also be very concerned if all of a sudden there was this massive thing that someone had proposed. Because I would wonder, well, how thoughtful has this proposal been? You know, how great point. is it? Do you know what I mean? So I think I, I, I really get nervous with knee-jerk reactions about like, you have a problem? I have an answer right here. It's fixed. Because the problem just didn't arise, you know, in 24 hours. So the solution, you should not be offering a solution in 24 hours either. So I give him credit for nibbling at this and saying I'm committed to figuring out other ways that we can make real change happen. He came out and said he was committed to the Crisis Act. He came out and said he was committed to probation reform. But it's redesigning systems. It's looking at who you have working in the systems, right? They don't work if you have people that don't believe in the mission of what you're trying to accomplish. And it will not work when you don't have supervisors and managers and authority figures who are also not believing in the mission right? And then it also doesn't work if you don't have a community that does not trust you. So I would rather we kind of focus on all of those aspects of the problem um, rather than try to have a knee-jerk solution and say we solved it. Because let me tell you, if you're telling me that you're going to solve racism in the summer of 2020, I'm going to tell you to stop smoking what you're smoking. I would agree with that. Can you tell can you tell us how we can get involved in helping the crisis act be passed and if there are listeners here in other cities who might not have some sort of a similar initiative going on how they can call on their elected officials to have something similar be drafted. Wow, yes. So please call Senator Holly Mitchell. She's actually my senator. So don't be mean to her, but call her and please call assembly member Phil Ting. He's an assemblyman representing San Francisco. They chair the budget committee for the Senate and the assembly, and they now hold the purse strings. We're going to vote on a budget. It will go to the governor to be signed. So call them and tell them, open up the purse a little bit more and put $16 million in it to fund the crisis act or else. Okay. Friend of a friend says, do it. Then also, you can call my office. I think the information is online, but we have language for the Crisis Act. And so for all of your listeners who are activists who want to get involved, not in the state of California, but in other places, take this language. Call one of your representatives in your state house and say, hey, try this. Try this. I want to be part of the solution. And we have language that's ready and that's been vetted in California. For everybody listening, I will put the number for both senators in the description of this episode, as well as the link to um, the bill so you can see any of the language that you want to send to your representatives as well. Thank you so much for coming on. We are so appreciative of all of this information that you have passed down to us. And thank you for all that you do as well. 
a few action items now that we're wrapping up this episode. Thank you so much to Assemblywoman Kim Linger for coming on the show. I know she is extremely busy at this time, so I'm so grateful for her for coming on and sharing all this information with us. As most of you have seen, I've also pledged to give free ad space to Black-owned businesses on the show. I'm sure you heard some of them today, so there's going to be more of that moving forward. I was so moved by the amount of emails I got and how cool some of these companies are, so I am so excited to share them with all of you. And if you know a business or a friend, please let them know that they can email me anytime at hello at friendofafriend.us to submit their business initiatives. Secondly, register to vote. Are you? If you are, have you checked your status? Because I know I had to. I'm registered in New York, but I'm currently in LA for COVID. And I'm sure there are so many of you listening in right now that are in a really similar situation, whether you had to leave college and go back to your parents' house or you're out of school or your work situation has changed. I really encourage everybody listening right now to go to rockthevote.org and look into everything you need, whether it's getting an absentee ballot or registering in a new state. It literally takes two minutes. Enter your information. Boom, you are done. I want to end this episode with a challenge for everybody. In the next few weeks, how can all of you listening find something within the work that you do, within your orbit, that you can do to make a tangible difference? To me, it's anything off the internet. Advocacy online is so important. I think social media is one of the best tools that we all can have. But the ability to go into real life and change someone's life in a big or a small way, that's paramount. And to know me is to know that there's nothing I love more than an action item. So for me, if you can all go out and think of one thing that you can control that won't contribute to more racism in our country, I applaud you. And that's my challenge for you is to think about the things in your orbit that you can directly make an impact. Me offering free ad reads, it's not going to change the world, but it does make a small difference. And I'm so, so grateful that I get to be in touch with all these new amazing entrepreneurs and help excel their business. Find something. I know that you all can. I love you all. I am so appreciative you took the time to listen to this. And I hope we can all leave this episode feeling a little bit more informed with the goal of making change. See you soon.